Everyday questions arise. Are the stories in the Bible true? What if I told you that there are hundreds of confirming witnesses, which give intricate detail to the stories in the Bible? Have you ever found yourself deep in the rabbit hole with questions that no one seemed to have the answers to? Join us the first Monday of every month at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Endeavor Freedom YouTube channel for our Ask Me Anything series with author and researcher Gary Wayne as he sheds light on the mysteries which have us all searching together. All right, shalom, and welcome everyone to another. Awesome episode of Ask Me Anything with author and researcher Gary Wayne.、Uh, as always, we greatly appreciate Brother Gary joining us to share from his immense amount of knowledge that he's gained throughout、uh, his decades of research and studying, with a perspective of truth given from the Holy Spirit. We praise the Most High、uh, for all of you. Thank you so much for joining together. We're just so grateful that、uh, He has revealed Himself to you. To know who he is, and that we can join together on this、uh, journey down all the different rabbit trails that、uh, we're led to when we start questioning the、uh, the Cliff Notes version of the scriptures that that we have、uh, been taught in Sunday schools and in churchianity. So we appreciate Brother Gary and all of you joining to be able to embark on this type of endeavor to get to know our Creator better, to get to know His Word better. And to prayerfully bring him pleasure and to glorify him with our whole life.、Uh, so I want to go ahead and bring on Brother Gary. How are you doing tonight, sir? Doing very well, and so happy to be back. And、uh, starting off a new year, we're certainly hoping that you know this year will be a better year than last year. And、uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens. Or we're just in the sort of the beginning of this new kind of ride. So,、right. um, yeah, well, certainly hoping hoping for better things, though. Definitely, 2021 doesn't have too much to、uh, to make up for or to be any better than 2020 because it won't be too difficult to to outdo 2020. Is what I'm trying to say. Yeah,、uh, yeah. I'm hoping it's a high jump contest and not a, <laughs> a limbo contest.、So. Oh yeah, definitely. That that's a good way to put it.、Uh, I do want to let everyone know that Brother Gary is going to be giving away a few of his books tonight. So please stick around at the midpoint break. We will be. Uh, giving those away, we'll ask a little trivia question, and then the first three answers—I believe it was three—is that correct?、Uh, well, I mean, you can you can do it any way that 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 you would like. So <laughs>、okay. we'll do three anyways. <laughs> Sounds good. Yep.、Yeah. So we'll be giving away three books, and we will be doing, I guess, three trivia questions, and we'll be presenting them at the break. And the first one to answer each question right will get a copy. Of Gary's awesome book, Genesis Six Conspiracy, the Genesis Six Conspiracy. And speaking of the Genesis Six Conspiracy, where can people go to find your book? Best place is my website, which is the Genesis Six Conspiracy dot com. That's Genesis Six with the number Six Conspiracy dot com. And on the website, you'll get a generous excerpt of. All ninety-eight chapters, so you'll get a real good feel for the book if it's for you or not. And if you decide it is for you, then you can click onto the Buy Now icon, and there you'll get a few choices. One is you can get a signed copy from myself, 
or you can also link over to Amazon and Barnes and Noble uh, to uh, purchase the book if you'd like to buy it that way or over to the Kindle version as well to get the digital copy. So that's uh, the easiest way to get a hold of my book, but it's available on most online bookstores and it's also available through um, Bookmasters out of Pennsylvania who distributes the book to the retailers. So if the retailer that you like to support doesn't have it on the shelf, you can say, can you order me this book in and they can ship it in on one of their next shipments. Excellent. I do encourage everyone to get a copy of Gary's book and stick around for the midpoint of the show where we will be offering uh, three of those as a giveaway. Uh, so without further ado, we'll say a quick prayer and we'll get straight into the questions. Uh, Father, we just humble ourselves before you. We thank you so much for life. We thank you for salvation. And we ask that you would please be with Brother Gary as we go through these questions tonight and give him uh, your spirit to be able to speak truth and to share uh, real knowledge, true knowledge of what really has happened in this world and what will happen in, as your prophets have foretold. Uh, we just humble ourselves before you and thank you so much for your sacrifice that you made on the cross and the salvation that we can receive through you. We just declare your victory to this fallen world that you defeated death and that you extend that promise or you extend a promise to us that we also can defeat death through you and just by your grace alone. We thank you so much. and We're so humbled by your great goodness and your mercy. We love you and we thank you for this time. In the name of the Messiah, amen. All right. We'll go ahead and pull up the first question of the night. It comes from Sean M. What are Vemanasa in ancient history, in your opinion? Alien Grace? I think this was a question that we had at the end of last episode, and we said we would touch upon again today. Sure. So I'm not a super expert on Hinduism, but I do know some of it. Uh, I know some of it and I'm familiar with certain aspects of it. So my understanding of who the, I would say maybe we have a spelling error on there as Vimanasa, unless I'm misunderstanding as to what there was being referred to by Sean. But typically I'm looking at that as probably the plural or the people of the, Vima, of the Vimanas. And there's kind of two traditions, as I recall, uh, on the Vimanas. And, one is that they are like a flying chariot and or a spaceship, um, like what Indra would uh, be flying in. And another tradition out of the, if I'm pronouncing it right, the Jain uh, text or the Jain text, some I've heard it also pronounced, yeah, and, and out of the Pushpaka Vimana of Ravana, you have them as more as flying palaces or flying temples. And they're almost like a tower, combination tower, pyramid sort of look, and very common in the architecture of temples over in, in India. And these were flown by, so these would seem to be larger, uh, and flown by some people that would be called, you know, the, the Vimana Vasan, and this is a class of gods. And we're not sure, I'm not sure exactly, are they low in the hierarchy, high in the hierarchy? Are they really the same ones as what Indra would be, or are they, as I say, are they a lower god? So I would say if they're kind of a lower god, then 
they might be like a gray alien or a, an elemental, and as what those would be out of the gnome classification of the fairies of the elementals. They'd be part of the ugly class, and there's gray gnomes that have flying machines. So you could make a connection there, but again, I, I'm not close enough to the text to understand whether or not these are like a lower level individual or a higher level. But what I do know is when you get into the the Mahabharata, and I talked about this at the end of my presentation last spring at the True Legends concert in terms of the angelic wars, that um, in the Mahabharata you get a Vimana that is, uh, is, is uh, depicted. And it was a flying, fast, powerful, uh, fast aircraft for uh, or a... Uh, I guess you probably, in, in sort of the alien context, it would be like a spaceship. And it would fire projectiles, uh, missiles of some sort that had the power of the universe. And it would make destruction that would bring up these large columns of flame and, and smoke that would be like a nuclear blast. And it was said to have in the Mahabharata you know, as bright as 10,000 suns, so probably more powerful than what we have as humans today. And it was some sort of unknown weapon, and it fired out like a thunderbolt, and it's called as a gigantic messenger of death. And it would absolutely eviscerate bodies. And so, Again, I'm not sure which level that Sean is talking about here or whether or not the, the ones out of the Ravana are as powerful as the one that um, some of the more powerful gods in the Hindu religion would, would fly. But I do think that these were probably by what the Mahabharata talks about from the of the Vimanas is that this would be the weaponry of fallen angels, of very, very powerful fallen angels that have the Ability to destroy the planet. So I think it's probably a higher level of being and not the alien grades. And I'm not saying that they don't have, the alien grades don't have a position in the overall hierarchy uh, because they do. But they're just at the smallest end of the hierarchy. And if they are the same as the gray aliens or the gray fairies or the gray gnomes, as, as I would sort of link them back to through through the fairy mythology and back into the occult mythology of the various groupings of the elementals, and there's four of them. Um, one is a reptilian class called the salamander. But without going down another rabbit trail, they these greys were ones that had flying machines. They kidnapped people. They look identical to the gray aliens. So if there's a connection there with that other uh, Pushpaka class, then perhaps they would be the same. But I don't really have any research that suggests that those are the gray aliens. But certainly from a Vimana aspect, uh, that would be the weaponry of the most powerful of the gods in the Hindu pantheon. Fascinating. I love how you give the disclaimer at the beginning. I don't know too much, but that's that's a lot of really interesting information, and I'm sure a lot to uh, set some people down some rabbit holes. Uh, so we'll move on to our next question. The Blunt Truth asks, "What's your thoughts today on the Serpent Seed? Uh, excuse me, Serpent Seed Doctrine, Gary?" Well, it's about the same as it was yesterday, or 
you know, for a long period of time. So um, I wouldn't say I've changed my position on it. I kind of clarify some things on it as I, I do some postings or answer questions on it. I'm still kind of agnostic on it, uh, and I don't really have a bone in the fight. I mean, I don't, it doesn't matter to me whether or not Cain is the son of Satan or he's just a follower of, of Satan. And so, but for me, um, and I'm open to the idea, because uh, certainly Cain was a horrible individual, and we get a lot of references in the New Testament about the way of Cain and you know the doing of evil as opposed to the righteousness that Abel was, and that's how you know the followers of the evil one are manifested is through sin and not and doing the works of the devil. And you know Satan is the murderer and the liar and the sinner from before Eden, and so. I just wanted to put that kind of on the table first. So I'm open to to the idea that Satan could be the father of Cain. I just don't have scripture for me. That's a smoking gun verse to say that that is the case. And I know there's a lot of people out there who make a very good case for it. But for me, I need that smoking gun verse. And I don't we don't really I don't really get that. Uh, so I'm open to the idea, but I'm I lean against it because I don't have that smoking gun verse. And we do get a smoking gun verse in Genesis 4 1. Uh, but then again, there's a couple of things in there, like you know, the word Cain, for example, is rooted in Kana, which is uh, to be gotten as as Cain was gotten from the Lord, but that's not gotten from Satan because the Lord goes back to to uh, Jehovah, so or Yahweh, so it's. It, it, I mean, there's a possibility there for me. I just don't get the verse in there. And also, when I look at how Enoch is born in Genesis four, and I look at how Seth is born, it's identical, same language as Cain. So, I mean, the words are identical, and so you'd have to say all of those would have been gotten in the same way. And then Abel as well, because it's used. You know, he's born again, and so it's like the same way as the writing goes as as Cain. So for me, I need something that's that's more on it to sort of doctrinally say that Cain is the son of, of, of Satan. And so for me, I lean, I lean against it for those reasons. The thing that sort of I get a little bit concerned about at times is how the arguments are made. And that I don't encourage people to manipulate scripture in any sort of way. And so I take issue at trying to overlay meanings that don't fit the narrative. And it's not that I'm not open to the idea because, you know, I use it in a lot of cases. I understand there's many different meanings to the Hebrew words. And you have to decide the right meaning for that word within the sentence that it is in, in the paragraph that it's in, within the narrative that it is in, and that it doesn't contradict any other scripture. And so I have issues with a lot of the arguments in terms of how it's made, because some of the arguments are made, because for me, I can't, I'm not going to lean on a side that has a lot of questions in that application or presents other conflicts of scripture. So that's why I leave the door open because I can also make a case for why it might be the case, but I think there's a stronger case scripturally that we don't have that. So for me, 
I lean against it and I'm where I was and um, I don't know. 10 years ago on it. It was the same where, where, where I'm as today. So hopefully for uh, the, the blunt truth that that helps you understand where my position is, is I'm not against it. I just think the argument should not manipulate scripture in any sort of way. Right on. Uh, on the same topic, I was just curious, how do you see the serpent being spoken to by the Most High in Genesis 3.15 where he says he's going to put enmity between your seed yeah. and her seed? Well, again, that, that word goes back to Nakash. And in the definition for Nakash, it all, it's only means a serpent or, or a snake or, you know, a, a snake thing like that. So to overlay Satan on it, I know there's imagery in Revelation 12 and also the aspect that he would probably be a seraphim angel and in a seraphic form, but we don't get any scripture that links Satan to a serpent in Eden like what we do in Revelation 12 and Revelation 20, where you get the dragon imagery, you get the old serpent, that's a serpent from the beginning. The only imagery that we get of Satan in the Garden of Eden is in Ezekiel 28, which is a church, he's the anointed cherubim. And a cherub isn't in that seraphim form. So Satan, without getting too complicated, has many different titles and that many different um, aspects of him. Seraphim, high priest, um, and, and cherubim would be some of them. And some people might think that Gadriel would be another one as as we get Gadriel and Eden in the book of Enoch, and that means the wall of God. Is that another title for Satan? I don't know. But we do know he was there as a cherubim, but we don't have scripture that says that he was there as a serpent. And we don't get any verses outside of Revelation 12 and 20 describing Satan and making sure there's no misunderstandings as to who they're talking about, because serpent in the New Testament is opus is is the greek word for it that means snake or serpent and figuratively and especially as i remember the language of the definition satan so you have to understand you have to then sort of look at the new testament passages and then say does it have those qualifications in there for satan or doesn't it and no other passages other where the Bible wants you to understand who this individual is, including the devil in those passages and the red dragon, as he's called in Revelation 12, 3, which means fiery red, as in fiery serpent red, right? As you take that back to the to the Greek, that means he's the seraphim, but we're told he was a cherubim in, in Eden. So we don't get that overlay. We also don't get... Um, and again, there's lots of puzzling things. I'm not here to, to sort of litigate the argument. Um, with the Nakash, this is the, this is the being that loses its intelligence. This is the being that loses its legs and its limbs, whether they're, not, they're wings or their their arms, and the whole species might indicate all. And it's a, and it's a beast of the field, but it's the one that is punished to crawl on the ground. And Satan isn't. And Cain isn't. Cain is not a giant, which you would think as the offspring of an angel, he would be a giant. But we don't get any scripture that calls him a giant. 
And so when we look at who's being punished, it's the Nikakash, the beast of the field. Just as the beasts of the fields are, or, or beasts of the field are called in Genesis one, and so again we don't get the smoking gun passage. So then the question gets to be, which is probably what you're kind of getting at with Genesis three fifteen, is how could the serpent seed be of this of this slimy serpent if they didn't have sex in Eden? And that gets to be the real question. So is that now a spiritual follower just of, of, of Satan, just as Nakash was, because he was wise already, wise with the knowledge of the world. And when God went to in, into Eden to f see you know, where Adam and Eve was, he first asked, not did you eat of the tree? He asked, who told you? And so we don't get scripture with an Akash eating the fruit, but we do get the we do get the uh, understanding that it already knows good and evil, and it's using its cunning language, which again runs through all of the meanings to the wisdom and the eating part of the tree. That he is already a follower uh, of Cain. So is this now a spiritual follower of Cain? Is in the way of Cain, as it's understood in the New Testament, or is it referring to another serpent seed that? is going to be the seed of, uh, of the serpent, because I can't imagine a slimy serpent mating with a human female and getting these reptilians. And, you know, again, we don't get scripture on that. What we do get, though, is the seraphim angels who are the sons of God, who are the watchers that Daniel 4 talks about. These are the fallen ones in Gen 6 who produce Nephilim, and they're shown on reliefs all around in the world, and same with the seraphims as these serpentine gods. So I really think if you want a physical sort of fulfillment to that prophecy, I would lean towards Genesis 6. Um, but what we don't get is this punishment for Satan. It's the Nakash that's punished, and that's the thing to remember, is that uh, in the whole sort of aspect if Satan, Satan wasn't sent to the abyss and Satan certainly didn't lose his legs and he didn't lose his intelligence and, and, and sort of everything that sort of goes with it. So that's how I would sort of look at it is that is either or it's both, you know, uh, a spiritual aspect in terms of the seed. And, a, and, a, and I certainly wouldn't put all of it on that because I do think there's a physical aspect of it as well that comes through Genesis 6. So it's not a requirement that it be the physical seed of that serpent, of that Nakash. But I think it what it is, is, is something that's going to happen later, and it's going to put uh, them at odds. And spiritually, you're going to have Cain at odds with the Sethites right from day one, because he, he was sitting again almost right from the beginning. And that's one of the reasons why his uh, offerings weren't offered. So, but for me, again, I need that smoking gun verse to say, here's how Cain was created. And we don't get that other than Genesis 4.1 that says that, you know, Adam and Eve or Eve conceived uh, or Adam knew, uh, Eve, she conceived, then she bore a son. All of it makes sense, and all of the words make sense that that's the, that's the process. And again, as I said, that's repeated for Enoch, and that's repeated for Seth. So, But again, just because I make this long list of arguments sort of saying on, you got to be careful, and you want to make sure 
uh, you know, how you're applying your scripture doesn't mean I close the door on it because um, I think there's some things there, as I said earlier, that you can make, make, make a good case for it, but try and do it without manipulating scripture. And in this case for Genesis 3.15, it's not Satan who's punished. It's actually the, the animal serpent that's the beast of the field that's punished. Yeah, it's very interesting. I always thought of that person, the the father of lies, to be the devil. Uh, but yeah, that's that's interesting. Uh, well, definitely he, laid well, out a, a big case there. Well, the father of lies is the devil, except that we're also told he in the New Testament that he sinned from the beginning, which was before, and he was the devil, the old serpent, which is uh, you know the the beginning of the world as you take that back to. Uh, back to Greek, and that means before Eden. The beginning of the world is before Eden. So he was sending Got before it. Eden. Yeah, definitely. And obviously the Nakash, the serpent, was a follower of Satan. Right. Yeah, definitely. Uh, very interesting. Uh, thank you for sharing that. I think it's crazy you know just how far uh disconnected we are to even think that a serpent could speak you know <laughs> it's like it's really hard to wrap our minds around what exactly took place thousands of years ago but it's awesome to have this type of discussion yeah and we don't know what it would have looked like before it was punished right so right. yep very interesting so we'll go ahead and move on to the next question seek first asks why did Noah's sons go into the room and cover up his nakedness if Ham indeed really slept with his mother? It makes me lean towards he really just saw his father naked. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's such a good question, and it's one of those things that kind of splits, uh, you know, a lot of theologians even as to what happened. Did you know Ham have some sort of sex with with? Uh, his father, or did he just see him naked? And if you just looked at the verse, you would say, well, I mean, it's pretty pretty straightforward. He got drunk. Noah got drunk. He passed out. And uh, Ham uncovers him, and he saw his nakedness. End of story. But one of the things that I also like to do is look for other applications and see is there does that wording match up elsewhere in the Bible and how is it used? And so you get sort of trying to get a balance from doing that as as you dig deeper. And so when I look at uh, other passages, you you get go into Leviticus 18, which would be a good place to start on it, I think, where you get uh, the laws of uh, how to deal with your immediate family and as it branches down using the same type of words in terms of your sort of outer family. And there's quite a few passages in there. And you get the same language that's being used as to, um, you know, it says don't un uncover uh, your mother and don't uncover her nakedness. And they'll use that with everybody sort of within the family. That's what the King James Version says. But a lot of English translations don't translate that as 
uncover or nakedness. There's, it literally says in that English translation, and there's several of them, that says don't have sex with your mother or your sister or your brother or your cousin. And so now you start to think, okay, well, why do you have other English translations that says that? Because when I look at, you know, the word uncover, which also can be, be used to, for discover as well, um, and used in the same applications that I'll talk about in, in, a, in a few minutes. Because, again, the word has several different meanings that you can use. So you, gotta, you have to make sure that it's being used in, in kind of the right context. Um, so when I look at other applications um, that sort of extend out of it, I look at Deuteronomy 22:28, where it's talking about a damsel and a virgin um, that's not betrothed and laying with her and to lie with her. And then as you get into 22:30, which is sort of part of part of the same passage, it talks about you shall not take his father's wife nor discover his father's skirt. And so that father's skirt is another sort of obscure sort of wording that will come back in into another passage as to what they're talking about. So again, are they just talking about saying naked and what the heck is this skirt all about? And then in Ezekiel 22.10, you get, you know, they discovered their father's nakedness and they have humbled her that was set apart for pollution. And then in verse 11, it goes on and talking about, and another, you know, and the neighbor's wife had lewdly defiled his daughter-in-law. So now you've got this being connected together with the file and pollution and abomination um, and all used in the word with the word discovered, which is that same word gala for uncovered. So as, as I'm moving forward here, I'm just trying to connect some dots so that people get a sort of a full understanding here. And in Leviticus 2017, it starts to really come together. So it says, if a man shall take his sister, his father's daughter, or his mother's daughter, and see her nakedness, and see his nakedness, it's, it's a wicked thing. And then it moves on in verse 18. And if a man shall lie with a woman having her sickness and she'll uncover her nakedness he hath discovered her that's the uncovered word uh her fountain so again now you've got lying and nakedness and uncovered and discovered working hand in hand but for me again i like the smoking gun verses and so that's for me is deuteronomy 27 20 and that's cursed be he that lieth with his father's wife because he uncovered his father's skirt. And father's skirt is translated in other English traditions as being bed. So you get that to me as that smoking gun verse where you get, you know, uh, uncovering, you get the bed, and you get uh, the curses part, which is what happens back in Genesis 9:24 when Noah awakes from his wine. And he knew what his son had done. And he said, cursed be Canaan. So everything sort of fits if you look at it in that kind of progression. And I wanted to take a little bit longer approach to that answer because it's come up a couple times before. And I thought, you know what? We probably could have done a better job of answering that. That was a great answer. Yeah, the smoking gun verse. Uh, with Le Leviticus twenty eleven, it says, "The man who lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness." 
Yeah. And then it goes on and says, both of them shall surely be put to death. So like you said, with the uh, the punishment attached there, it's interesting. But of course, that was in Leviticus, you know, after the whole whatever happened with Ham and, and Noah. So anyways, let's move on. I, I think that, you know, for reasons that don't need to be said, the, the Bible makes some things uh, a little less clear. So that yeah. you know, you don't need to get too graphic. Well, well, you know, the other issue is um, some of the more modern translations aren't as accurate as they ought to be in some of the words, which makes people a little bit suspicious about it. And then the King James version is using such older language that it, it doesn't really sink in. What what are they really trying to say? And that's what sort of also makes it gray at times. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, so moving on to our next question, it comes from Juliet, and she asks, has the tribulation began, or how soon will it be? Yeah, that's another good question, and I, I do get asked this question uh, a lot. And the first thing I want to say is that the word tribulation is the, the geek, Greek word uh, Philippians, and it can mean affliction as it's used in Matthew 24 in the first three and a half years and or in Mark where it uses the same word for tribulation and again Matthew will use that word tribulation later on after the abomination which still goes back to the same word so um, again it helps if, if the, the translation was as was more, a little bit more consistent and it can mean you know a, a few different things but it all really is centered around sort of tribulation so I'm not sure why the translators were you know maybe micromanaging some of those translations to, to, to say it sort of nicely but it's used 65 times in the New Testament and what we are told is that we will have to go through tribulation in uh, John 16 3 and then Acts 14 and, and we it also in Acts 14.22, it talks about that we have to go through tribulation to enter the kingdom of God. So what that's going to mean is, is that you're going to have issues. But that's different than what Juliet is talking about with sort of this, this, this tribulation. Is it the last three and a half years? Is it the last seven years? I think those are two separate tribulations, one for the saints in the first three and a half years, one for the entire world, um, which is the tribulation of the world. Uh, and they had not seen since the beginning of the world, like before its creation. So this is a different tribulation in the last three and a half years than the affliction or the same word Philippians in the first three and a half years in Matthew 24 that Jesus is talking about. So my first point would be is that we're not in the last seven years. So we're not in the tribulation yet. I do want to qualify that we get that last seven years out as in the time of the end in, math, in Daniel 26 and 27, where you have the wars will, will continue until the end, which is the end time as you take that back to the Hebrew uh, meanings, and then you get the seven years, and then the middle of the seven is the abomination. So you get that same time frame that Jesus is laying out for the, uh, for the last seven years. But I'm also open to the fact that there's going to be tribulation that's above 
those last seven years. And the reason why I say that is you get this odd line that lines up again kind of well with the terminology in the prophetic allegory for days as being years, just as you get in the Daniel prophecy of the last week is seven days, which is seven years. And in Revelation 2.10, we're told there's going to be 10 days of tribulation. Well, you could look at that as just days, but I think as you look further on into Revelation, when you get the same count of days happening in the last three and a half years as what you're getting in, in Daniel, and you've got two three and a half year points. And again, I'm talking about Antichrist being crowned at the midpoint of the last seven years, and his rule is going to be for three and a half years, or after Judea flees Jerusalem, as described in Revelation 12, and is going to be protected for three and a half years. I think we get some symmetry there that these days, because that happens in Revelations and matches up so well with what Daniel is talking about, that you can make a good case that there are 10 days of tribulation that are coming. That would be 10 years. And maybe even higher levels of escalating persecution and tribulation before you even get into the last 10 years. So you have perhaps three years before the start of the last seven and as it ramps up. And the reason why I say that is Jesus is very, very good about the details, as you would expect, uh, being the word of God and the spirit of prophecy. He talks about the birth pangs and the birth pangs get in the allegory of labor and travail and sorrows, and I won't go into all of the verses in, in the Bible to get into that because uh, that's kind of like a half an hour answer, but on the short term is they're all talking about what happens in birth, and these are the birth pangs of the birth pang catastrophes, which are pestilence, famine, wars and rumors of war, um, and uh, earthquakes. And those birth pangs, as you understand that allegory, are going to get stronger as you go. So that by the time you get to the opening of the seals, which would be obviously, I think, around the same time of the uh, Revelation 2.10 and the 10 days, you have uh, the seals presenting 25% catastrophes population-wise, earth-wise, everything-wise. Just as you then get the 33% destruction of the trumpets, which happened just before the midpoint of the last seven years, and then in probably towards more closer to the last year or so of the last three and a half years, you have the bowl judgments, which would be 100% except Jesus comes back and steps in. So you get this understanding that this persecution, this affliction, this tribulation is going to be ramping up as birth pangs do. And again, Jesus is talking about this affliction happening in the first three and a half years. So I think what you get, and, and, the, and the size of that affliction in the first three and a half years are the saints, and that's shown in Revelation 7. These are the ones that the first fruits in Revelation 6, the ones who are already martyred, are waiting for that come out of the tribulation. 
That's the first three and a half years. That's for the saints as opposed to the rest of the world that is talked about later in Matthew and Mark. And so I think that you've got tribulation getting worse and getting harder and more oppressive as we go towards the opening of the seals. I also think Babylon comes along in its rise and in its implementation before the last seven years. Because these ten kings that are going to be part of the last three and a half years before they, or the first three and a half years before they give their power over to the Antichrist, as it says in Revelation 17, to destroy Babylon, are going to be ruling with Babylon in the first three and a half years. So Babylon reigns over these kingdoms and they are subservient to Babylon. And that's why they hate her. That's why they join forces with Antichrist. So you need time for Babylon to get set up. And I think that's when you get the false prophets that are coming along and they're doing the prophecies of catastrophe, contrived catastrophe, and that they're driving people into this religion where Antichrist is going to be moving up into and negotiates that covenant that starts the last seven years in Daniel 9.27 and then is crowned as Antichrist at the midpoint when he destroys Babylon. Uh, when sets up the abomination in the temple. So the short answer is no, we're not in the tribulation of those last 10 years or the last seven years, but we are in the birth pangs of those tribulations and expect that to ramp up more and more and more as we get closer to the seals being open. Absolutely. It's uh, amazing times that we're living in and times that we're told to watch closely. Uh, so moving on to the next question comes from Roxy. What would you do if you found out you were directly descended from some of the well-known bloodlines like Plantagenet, De Montague, Purdue, etc., specifically kings like Henry III? Well, I think I can understand a little bit how Roxy might be feeling. So I put a description in the book uh, that I wrote uh, on, on the Nephilim in terms of their description as being, you know, in one of the descriptions as being red-haired and hazel eyes and very pale skin, which when I was younger, I had not red hair, but I had tinges of red hair and red hair run through our family. I have hazel eyes and I'm very pale and I'm from, um, you know, Scottish and Irish bloodlines. So, when I when I was doing the research on, I'm going. Does that mean I'm a descendant of the Nephilim? And what does that actually mean? Well, for me, it would be the same as what Roxy is talking about because I think that uh, the bloodlines of the Raphaim and the Nephilim are the royal families. And so when she's naming some of these uh, very well known bloodlines like the Plantagenet that come out of the Anjou. And, you know, the, uh, the other two families, Purdue and uh, De Montague, these are part of that greater bloodline family of princes and kings. And, and she's also listed Henry III as well. So, and, but you have to remember, again, that comes out of the Plantagenet. So what that means is that they take their genealogies back to the Raphim and the, the fallen angels. And... And my whole answer to that is, so what? Who cares? Um, anybody who believes in Jesus 
and accepts Jesus as their Redeemer and as their Messiah and as their Savior and as the Word of God who came to us born as you know through the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit and who was crucified as the Lamb of God for our sins, they're going to have everything forgiven if you have that faith in you, if you have Jesus in you. And there's only one sin that isn't seemingly covered by Jesus' Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And that is a sin against the Holy Spirit or a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And so when we look at the fallen angels, they're going to go to the lake of fire. And they're going to, as immortals, I expect would be there forever. And just as you have the people in Revelation in the last three and a half years, and as Revelation 13 talks about taking the mark of the beast, that that's going to be somehow a sin against the Holy Spirit because they're also going to burn forever in the lake of fire. And so there's something there against the laws of creation that the fallen angels had did and swore an oath, and perhaps an oath is sworn here, and there's something against um, the life of creation, and certainly the fallen angels created counterfeit spirits, as I would call it, that went into the Nephilim. I would think there's something that's going along with the mark that would have something similar to that in terms of changing your DNA and or changing your spirit or suppressing your spirit or doing something with that that is going to qualify for that kind of punishment. And even if you don't take the mark, even if you worship Satan and Antichrist in those last three and a half years and you don't take the mark, you're still going to the lake of fire. So there's this allegiance and worship of Satan and Antichrist that is something that is just not forgiven. But for all else, all the sins are forgiven. So what that's telling me is that there's a choice involved here. And the choice is, is worship and follow Antichrist and the fallen angels or worship God and accept Jesus as your redeemer. And it doesn't matter what you do except by by what your choices are. And not making a choice is the same as making a choice, which means you're uh, you're going to go to the second death. You may not go to uh, be punished forever, but you're not going to be saved. So innocence isn't going to be punished in this case. And this understanding that you had the ability to make that free choice to choose God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit is everything. And that will overrule any sort of physical attributes that you inherit through your ancestors. And there's only one thing in the Bible that I'm familiar with in terms of being responsible for the sins of your fathers, and that's only into the fourth generation, and that's only as it applies to the nation of priests with Israel that's set down. So certainly anything beyond that, even if you use that as a, a small sort of wedge and say, well, wait a minute, that would be the only thing on the other side of the table. So for me, Roxy, if I found out, I would be upset, I would be unhappy, but you can't change what you can't change but 
I'm sure if you're listening to this show, you've already accepted Jesus as your redeemer, so you don't have any worries. Absolutely. Amen to that. Hallelujah. All right. Our next question comes from Rock. And this is a great question that I'm sure uh, many people would love to hear your intake on, including myself, because I, I, I love to study Daniel and, and, of course, you know, Gog and Magog and the end times prophecies. So this question is, who is the king of the north at present? Yeah. That whole uh, chapter uh, 11 is uh, very, very confusing for me. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're not alone. I mean, there's so many kings of the north and the kings of the south, and I'm trying to always figure out through history who they might be, and I go back and forth. The only thing I can tell you, though, is, is there is a there is a split from the confusion and into clarity, at least for myself, in terms of being able to understand it. And that comes between Daniel 11.20 and 11.21. And so I wonder whether or not Daniel is talking about the end of the first Iron Empire uh, that's talked about in Daniel 2 and 7 that sort of comes to an end by the end of uh, verse 20. Because after that, I mean, you had a king that had already invaded Israel and this would be, you know, Vespasian at the time of the destruction of, of, of Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden, no matter where we are in that history point, and I can't really make those, you know, those verses immediately before that sort of fit Hitler or Napoleon or other ones that sort of make any sense in terms of the detail, but I'm open for somebody to help clarify me on that. But whatever point that the history stops, you all of a sudden move into forward prophecy for us. And in, in Daniel 21, it says that, you know, this last king is going to be succeeded by a contempt, contemptible person who's not given any honor of loyalty, or of royalty, I'm sorry. Um, and this is the Antichrist, and we get the description of the Antichrist in his rule. And we know Antichrist comes to power at the midpoint of the last seven years, but this seems to be starting at his rise to power. So somewhere in the last seven years, somewhere in the first three and a half years, I think this starts to show his rise to power. And so he's the king of the north at that point. But who the king of the north is today, that's really hard to know. Although you can make a good argument, I think that Antichrist is going to, you know, come out of the old Roman Empire or their old Greek Empire. We don't have a king that's overseeing all of that today, although you've got the European Union, but it's not a king yet. And the only other one that would sort of fit in might be would be Putin. But again, I think he's not quite there yet, and we're not quite there yet in terms of the unfolding of Daniel 21, uh, 11.21 forward. So I guess my answer is I, I don't know who's the king today, and not, or the king of the north today, and I'm not convinced that there is one today, that to me there's a gap in here between whenever the older uh, prophecies for us from a historical 
position have been fulfilled and then when it jumps forward into the end time. So we shall see. Um, but for me, I, I cannot put a name on today who would be the king of the north because there's just nothing there that I can use scripture for to say that makes sense, that there is a king of the north, that somehow these other prophecies just before have been a little bit more recent in time, and this is the extension of that. I can't sort of crystal ball that and make it happen. I just, I've looked at it a thousand times, but maybe it's not for me to understand that part. But what I do know is when it starts to talk about Antichrist, and then things become very clear. Yeah, definitely. Uh, like you, uh, I have tried to plug and play dozens and dozens of different time periods, different kingdoms, you know. How do you feel about a possible split between a revived Ottoman Empire uh, versus like an, an Egypt, Egyptian uh, like agreement with Israel and uh, partnership with Israel? As being a king of the north today? Yeah, like maybe led by uh, Erdogan trying to revive the Islamic Caliphate, that, oh. that style? Oh, oh, absolutely. I think uh, when I look at the King of the North and the King of the South, that um, you have to also look at what the Ottoman Empire was and, and where it fit all in, in this. But for me, I'm not sure whether or not that would be considered the King of the North or the King of the South, because the King of the South mm -hmm. seems to be Egypt and into Persia and Babylon, and on and they're kind of in nowhere's land, and I don't know how to decide that. My gut feeling is they would be of the north, but <laughs> it's hard to know. But he would be—he would certainly be a possibility as being certainly the home of Gog and Magog in the initial migration of the of the tribes after the flood. And obviously, the tribes have migrated further beyond that, and that's where it starts to get a little bit more complicated into what that alliance looks like in the end time. But no doubt, that would be a connection to Asia Minor and to uh, the Ottoman Empire and, and, and Turkey today. So, and you do see, you know, things going on that they geopolitically they're kind of moving in a direction that is different again, and I'm not sure where they end up, but they could certainly very well be part of the uh, the Gog Alliance, but are they, you know, the king of Mesesh, which tends to be etymologically, um, you know, from the Scythians and the root word for Moscow. So hard to really know where they kind of fit in there. That part's a little bit sort of murky. Yeah, thank you for sharing your insights with us. So it is 8.54. I think it's a great time to go ahead and take a quick break. And right when we get back, we're going to be giving away three of Gary's books, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. And it will be done in a trivia fashion. So I'll be asking three questions as soon as we get back from our break. And the first person to answer each one of these three questions will get a free copy of Gary's awesome book, the Genesis 6 Conspiracy. So we'll be right back. As a bookstore for truth seekers, it's our goal to make ancient manuscripts which were once held captive by secretive institutions available for public consideration. 
In our generation where wisdom has increased, as Daniel the prophet foretold, we have access to many of the testimonies our early church brethren were persecuted for preserving. After being hidden for centuries, these manuscripts have been leaked from various sources throughout the earth, and it's our goal to gather these sources into printable form to make available for all who seek the ancient way. If you're looking to deepen your studies of the biblical narrative, find these ancient manuscripts and more at sacredwordpublishing.com. Your partnership with Sacred Word Publishing goes further than the publishing of ancient manuscripts and weekly video content. You also make a huge impact across the earth in orphanages in Myanmar, India, Uganda, and Kenya. Your support is crucial for the development of the Ecclesia of Real Truth Seekers. We thank you for joining us in hosting Secrets Revealed, Momentary Zen, the Digital Readers Club, Ask Me Anything series, and other shows that have helped lead so many to the truth of salvation. Become even more involved? Please visit patreon.com slash sacredwordpublishing where you can partake in exclusive, interactive, patron-only content and help us continue shining the light of love in this darkened world. All right, welcome back, family. I just want to say thank you all for joining us. And thank you, Gary, for joining us as well. Uh, there have been some really amazing questions tonight. And we have quite an extensive list of questions that have been submitted so far that are just all amazing. But uh, we're going to take a break from asking Gary some questions. And we're going to give you some questions to the chat. And this is your opportunity to win a free Genesis 6 conspiracy book from Gary Wayne himself. Uh, so the first person to answer each question right, I'm going to ask them one at a time. The first person to answer the question right will get a free copy of the Genesis 6 conspiracy. And the way that we will do that is I will ask you to send us an email uh, to sacredwordpublishingllc at gmail.com with your shipping address and your name and then we will make sure that uh, you get your copy to you so if everyone's ready we will ask the first question and this is a pretty simple one who was the father of Enoch and if you know go ahead and type it in the chat the first person to answer will get the first of our three books that we're giving away tonight who was the father of Enoch 
and I know there is a slight delay between the live stream and what we're doing now so maybe I'll have to wait a few seconds to see waiting for the chat who was the father of Enoch and then we'll move on to the next question as soon as we get the right answer oh we got a some people answering now but Methuselah unfortunately is not the father of Enoch we're still waiting on a, a correct answer <laughs> it's a great oh there we go we got a correct answer from braided prepper who answered Jared yes you are correct the father of Enoch was Jared so please email us at sacredwordpublishingllc at gmail.com with your name and your shipping address. We'll make sure that this first copy that we're giving away gets sent to you. So our next question is, who was Elijah's protege that received his cloak after he was translated? So I'll ask again, who was Elijah's protege that received his cloak after he was translated? So the first person to answer correctly is going to get our second copy of the Genesis 6 conspiracy. How exciting. I'm so enjoying this. Uh, the giveaway is such a pleasure. Thank you, Gary, for offering to do this giveaway. Uh, it's always a blessing, and I know that many, many people want to get their hands on your book. And could you let everyone know, uh, maybe one more time, where they could go to, to grab a copy of your book? Yes, best way, best place to buy my book is through my website, the Genesis Six Conspiracy dot com. That's Genesis Six, with the number Six Conspiracy dot com. And on the website, you can click on the Buy Now icon, and that'll take you into a page where you have some choices. You can buy a signed copy from myself if you like, and you can also uh, click over to Barnes and Noble and to Amazon dot com and and buy a book there or you could click over to uh, the Kindle which is Amazon again but for specifically to the digital page to get the Kindle edition if you want a digital one and people can also buy my book uh, through most online bookstores and if you want to support your local bookstore then uh, have them order it in it's distributed by bookmasters so they can get it in on one of their shipments on books coming in from bookmasters so lots of ways to, to, to get the book excellent and we did have a correct answer come in from Cody congratulations to Cody Please, Cody and Braided Prepper, email us at sacredwordpublishingllc at gmail.com with your name and your address, and we'll make sure you get those books. So our last one that we're going to be giving away, Cody said, thank you so much. I'm so stoked. Yes, it's so awesome that Gary is giving away a free book. That is so nice of you, Gary. We really appreciate it, and we appreciate, of course, all the research that you put in to making this book. Uh, so our, our last question, last opportunity to win a free copy of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy. First answer, first correct answer is going to get this last copy. And the question is, where did Daniel begin his exile and who was the king of that nation? So I'll ask again, where did Daniel begin his exile and who was the king of that nation? So we'll wait a little bit on... The right answer to come through uh, but 
I guess this, uh, it was meant to be that we just talked about Daniel a little bit. That was our, our final question here, coming from Daniel. So who, or where did Daniel begin his exile, and who was the king of that nation? I love the story of Daniel. Uh, it's, it's really special. And I encourage everyone to read it if you haven't. All right, it seems we have our first correct answer. Congratulations to Iliam Tell, who said Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. Correct. So congratulations, Iliam Tell. Please also, along with Cody and Braided Prepper, email us at sacredwordpublishingllc at gmail.com with your name and your shipping address. And we'll make sure that those get sent your way. Thank you so much again, Gary. And great job, everybody, on getting the correct answers. And we appreciate you joining. Uh, we'll go ahead and cut the music and throw up the next question. What did you think about the questions that we had tonight, Gary? They're uh, oh, they're a little bit easier than the ones that you get. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's still there, you know. There's a couple things, yeah, you know, on each of them that people had to consider. So right. it's uh, and and not to answer too quickly in case you got it wrong. So um, I just wanted to say when they send in the addresses to um for where the books are to be sent to if they want it signed in any particular way uh, or words uh, put that on there as well and i'd be more than happy to do that if not i'll put uh, i'll put something on there myself awesome that's so so awesome so nice of you all right so are you ready to get back into the pre-made yep. list i think let's see what question this is we have about five more before we get into live questions so we're making pretty good headway uh, so if you do have a question and you're joining us in the live stream please feel free to add your question to the chat uh, if we don't get it get to it tonight we will add it to the list for next month's ama so getting to the next question that actually comes from daniel <laughs> a lot of daniel going on tonight uh, daniel says what makes the gospel of mary magdalene and other gnostic texts unreliable in its proclamations about Christ. How does it compare to the four Gospels contained in the New Testament? Uh, could you please help me to show others that many Gnostic claims about Christ are unreliable and that evidence of his kingship, divine person, and Savior are reliable? It's, it's a good question. I mean, the pretext of the question and, and versus the details um, that Daniel is looking for on this I think is is the important thing. So one of the things that I try and do uh, anytime I am reading and considering other sources, um, whether they're Apocrypha or Wilder, let's put it that way, is how does it measure up against what the Bible says? And I measure everything against what I read outside the Bible, against what is written inside the Bible. And then I would include, you know, first Enoch, for an example, as uh, one. And, and so I don't accept everything in Enoch, but I think it's about 99% consistent with Scripture. But I know uh, a lot of the areas where I'm going, eh, that gets to be an issue because uh, it's, you know, for example, it, it'll say something like um, in Enoch, you know, the angels built the ark for Noah. Well, that's not what Scripture says. So there's a few corruptions in there. And the problem with it is that we don't have an original manuscript for it. 
Now, with the New Testament ones, it's a little bit different because you're getting the New Testament recorded in Greek. And so most of the apocrypha for the New Testament is going to be in, you know, some of them might be in Aramaic, but most of them will be in Greek. There might be a few other later languages. So one of the verifications is to, you know, try and get an original manuscript and try and date when it might have been put together. So the Gospel of Mary is not a very long um, book, um, and it was discovered, first discovered in 1896, and there's been some other copies discovered since. And it's thought to be written in the second century um, CE, so, or AD. And so it, from that perspective, you know, it has some credibility because, you know, you've got Greek and you've got an early sort of writing on it. But as has been posed, it's, 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 deemed, it's deemed and it's put in with the Gnostic gospel. So what makes this a Gnostic gospel? Well, the first thing, though, is that we don't have a complete manuscript and there's a big hole in the middle where... Mary in, in this gospel is talking about um, her discussion with Christ, and there are no other witnesses. And so we don't get the full context to what she's talking about. And within that vision is that um, it's talking about this divine sort of knowledge and revelation that's coming, but it's framed around elements and Things. And so typically in Gnosticism, you get that knowledge from the elements and from other sources than the God of the Bible. But this doesn't say this is coming from outside the God of the Bible, and we don't have the full context where this knowledge is coming from because those parts are uh, missing. And another area where people tend to classify this gospel as being more Gnostic is it says sin is rooted in or originates with adultery. In a typical fashion, it leaves out that sin actually originates in the Bible. And we've talked about this earlier with sin and murder and lies beginning with Satan, as opposed to adultery, which is one of those sins. It's one of the works of, of the devil. And so it's a little bit limited in that for, in portion, but Certainly, adultery is a sin, and adultery is worshiping other gods. And so that can be, you know, very subjective. Does that mean that that's a Gnostic uh, gospel? It's, it's To me, that's a bit inconclusive. And I don't, you know, the, the gospel of Mary is, is you know, it's, a, it's not bad. But there is one line in there that I think... Uh, a couple of verses in there that we need to be careful with because the Gnostics do seize on this. And significantly with um, in 6.1, or let's, let's do 10.4 in the Gospel of Mary first, where Peter is objecting, and there's another disciple in there that's objecting to Mary's vision with, with Jesus. And they're saying, well, why wouldn't have this been shared with us? And they're actually accusing her of lying in this gospel. And that 
it is suggesting that Mary was more worthy as a disciple than the other disciples. And so that starts to put the hierarchy a little bit in out of whack if you wanted to carry that in a direction that was anti-Christian. And the Gnostics do that, believe me. And the other verse that's in there is 6.1, where it says, Jesus loved Mary like no other woman. And what they're saying as they infer on that is that Jesus actually married Mary. Now, it doesn't say that in this gospel. Well, that's what the Gnostics do with it. And that's why they like it so much, because they believe Jesus survived, married Mary Magdalene, and they're actually married uh, when Mary anointed uh, Jesus and uh, at Bethany, as I recall, and you know just before the crucifixion, and that's when they were married. And later they had three children, uh, which Josephus is the one that survives and, and continues with what they call the Davidum title and marries into the uh, Camelot dynasties after uh Joseph of Arimathea in their belief system takes the grail or Josephus to England and then that crosses over to the Merovingian bloodline through Aragon and Aminabad of the Merovingians and you get that scioning into the bloodlines of the Nephilim that the Da Vinci Code talks about even though it is a fictional book it's based on what they believe so that's why it's important so they'll look at this as the one the disciple that jesus loved more than anybody else and they're going to say that this is the one that jesus is talking about at the end of the book of john as the disciple that he, he that he loved and and if he decided that she that that person should live until he returns you know, what is it of you? It didn't say that she was never going to die, but that she could live or the disciple that loved Jesus, whoever it is, and that's a good argument and debate in itself, um, would be alive until Jesus returns. So it's how the Gnostics have seized on this and why they've seized on it. But there's not a lot in there that, is, like I say, it's not a long gospel. And there's a lot, a lot in there that I would take issue with in terms of my uh, reading on it. I wish we had the full one so I could fully evaluate the vision better that uh, Mary is, uh, is talking about to the other disciples in this gospel. So to answer the question is, is the Gnostics tend to overlay a dualistic belief system of good versus evil that are equal and that the God of the Bible is one of these fallen angels, or one of these angels, uh, no powerful than the other ones that oppose them. And one is good and one is evil. And of course, they believe they're the good guys and the God of the Bible is the evil one. But you don't get that dualism in, in this gospel. You just get these few little things. And we don't really know who the actual writer was on what my research is. And I might be mistaken on that, but I've not found who we can actually uh, state who wrote it down. Um, but it is, you know, uh, considered the words of Mary and the words of the disciples as, as it's written in there. So those are the reasons why it's classified as a gospel, uh, as a Gnostic gospel. But I don't find it all that problematic, except that I do recognize where the Gnostics could use it to their advantage.
Excellent. Thank you very much for that answer. Our next question comes from Miriam. If Nephilim were able to interbreed with human women, it must have had DNA. I know they have a habitation and they can appear as humans. Can you talk about your thoughts on why they have DNA in the first place? Do all spiritual beings have DNA? And does this mean they all have some element of physicality? What an interesting question. It is a very, very good question. So as a spirit, I don't think that there is a DNA. But in the physical body, there is a DNA. So when we look at Jude 1.6 as a way of sort of getting our heads around this, we understand that these fallen angels left their habitation. And that's the word that's used in the question here, and it's, it's an excellent place to sort of dig into it. And habitation is the Greek word oikotarian. And that means a dwelling place for the spirit, because angels are spirit beings. So um, in heaven, they had their habitation. They had a place for the dwelling place that held their spirit. And they also need one in the physical world to hold that spirit. And we've talked in the past of body, spirit, and soul, with the soul and the spirit, be, or the soul and the body being of this world, and the spirit being from heaven. And this is the dwelling place that is required for an angel to take on a physical form. So we've seen angels in the Bible, let's say as in the Sodom and Gomorrah narrative, and when they go to visit Abraham just before Sodom that they look like men they take the shape of a form they eat they drink they talk they touch they have a physical form so we know they have the ability to take a physical form to interact with the physical world when you take a physical form that's going to operate as a human you're going to have to have a physical form that has all the properties of a, of, of a human form. And inside is that dwelling place that's going to merge with the soul to be the dwelling place for the spirit. So they have that oikotarian or that habitation on earth. And so there's DNA in that physical body is how I would understand that. Now, in 2 Corinthians 5.2, you get the oikotarian where it's used one other time. So it's only used twice in the whole New Testament. And that's the house, as in the house in heaven, but specifically the house for the spirit, which I think kind of plays on, Jesus tells us that God has a large mansion in heaven with lots of rooms. So you would have a habitation in that, in that house in heaven. And I think that's the consistency of the, the allegory that's going on as you wind through the... the uh, New Testament. And we get another example of evil spirits that I think are the demon spirits and the offspring or the, the spirits that uh, are of the Nephilim that didn't go to sleep after the body died and weren't allowed into heaven. To interact in the world, they need a habitation. They need a place for that spirit to dwell. And that's why they possess humans, because they don't have a spiritual, they don't have the ability to manifest physically anymore after their bodies died, and they want to interact in the world. So they suppress the host and use that host's soul and body as uh, as their habitation. 
So if we look at all of that, then that means that that DNA is then passed on to the offspring that uh, produced the Nephilim and the Rephaim. And then that's how you would have traits of the fallen angels passed on. So they, the watchers, which were the seraphim on the first go around, they look like serpents. And that's why you get this serpent imagery with the kings who are worshiping the governing angels, which are the seraphim angels, the watchers of Daniel 4. And they look just like their parents because that DNA passed on through the physical body. And so somehow when they make a manifestation, that manifestation will reflect and carry some of their traits in that DNA, not completely. And somehow, some way, that counterfeit spirit of the fallen angels enters into and carries on into the human Nephilim and Raphaim. So I think that's how it sort of all comes about. And this also kind of makes sense when you look at what happens with, with, with Jesus. So he's the word who comes from God. And it's the Holy Spirit that is going to implant the word into Mary's womb, which is producing for Jesus the body and the soul. So you have a dwelling place for the word spirit to become flesh not sexually done, as what the fallen angels did with with the human females, but a body and a soul created within Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit that's going to hold Jesus, and he can become the Word made flesh, and not to be confused in any way then in terms of how the demigods were created by fallen angels. And so I think if you think about all of that, then... It starts to make some sense. Yeah, just a little bit to uh, to take a hold of. <laughs> that was great. Thank you very much. And really awesome questions tonight. Uh, so we'll move on to the next one that comes from Judecast. What is the significance of the red string in Genesis thirty eight twenty eight that's put upon Zara? Is Kabbalah pagan? <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I misunderstood that. Uh, Kabbalah is pagan, yes, it's polytheism, so there's two questions in there. That's the mystical aspect of Judaism that I think enters into Judaism when they are exiled in Babylon because they have a lot of Sumerian mythology that comes back with them. And part of that would be the Lilith tradition that shows up after they've been exiled in Babylon. And for those people who aren't familiar with Lilith, it's a, it's a, a Sumerian demigod or uh, angel goddess that is, uh, you know, one of the sort of root sources to vampire mythology and upiers and things like that. But anyways, Kabbalism, I think, begins with the Babylon exposure in Sumeria, and that's where you get some of those Sumerian things that are showing up in in the Kabbalah, like Samael as a name for Satan. Sama is a place in Mesopotamia, and El is a god, and the Kabbalah looks at Samael as the name of Satan in his seraphic form. And we've talked a lot about seraphic form for 
Satan earlier in the show, so I won't, you know, digress and talk about that again. But understand, it is like uh, Gnosticism invading Christianity. It's that same sort of ideology. So you've got Gnostic Christians, you have mystic Judeans, and it has a big influence on, on, on Judah even, even to this day and has a long history. And a lot, and a lot of people, as, as I do, think the Essenes were the Egyptian part of that mystical aspect of Judaism as well. But that's another rabbit hole. I, I won't go down that one today. So now the question on 3828 on the red string um, is actually, as you take that back to Hebrew, um, the word shani, which means crimson or scarlet. And it's the same word that's used in a lot of other verses in the Bible that um, comes up in the coloring of threads uh, or of threads to make uh, something out of like a curtain for the uh, tabernacle. It's a scarlet or it's, a, it's the same word, shiny, and same for what was material was made in terms of the color for the priest ephod that's in Exodus 28.6. And it's also the marking of that scarlet color in um, Joshua 2.18, and then in 6.22 and 23 on, on, on houses. And it can also mean, shiny can mean uh, a number of things, but certainly crimson and scarlet as in a material, but it can also mean cord or hope. And so you might be familiar with the term crimson cord. Now, typically, this crimson cord or this string that is talked about or this line that is talked about in Genesis 36, 28 is something that is tied onto the hand of a baby that reaches through uh, into the open air from the womb first. And it's tied around the wrist. And what's important is that this whole idea of crimson cord is is a birthright being passed on. So the imagery is all about who's the first son and the birthright. And because there were twins there, Perez and Zerah, and Zerah reaches out with the hand, the, the maidservant puts the uh, scarlet thread around the wrist and identifying who reached out of the womb first with the hand and is designated as the firstborn. And that's so that there's no confusion going forward as to who's the firstborn, because they're born right away, except that Ferez is comes out of the womb first and Zara behind, even though Zara reached first. So it's, it's a birthright designation and it has nothing to do uh, with the, with the, uh, with the Kabbalah. Another definition for the word is hope, and that's kind of more the application that's going on in Joshua 2.1.8, that you know, you're doing something to, to mark um, with the scarlet, and it's in hope of salvation. And a lot of people look at, in another allegory for the crimson cord or the thread that's scarlet, is it is the thread of prophecy and it is the same color of sacrifice and atonement that Jesus will do 
um, down the road in prophecy through the crucifixion. So it has a lot of different allegories for it, but for the literal aspect, it's the birthright. And this is the offspring of Judah and Tamar that's going to create the Judah bloodline. So that birthright inheritance, however it's going to be passed on, has to be identified and has to be clear. And this is how the Bible lets us know how they decided who would carry that birthright. Excellent. That really uh, cleared it up, I think. Our next question comes from Brian. And he's got a pretty long question. Let me pull it up on the list so I don't miss anything. Uh, he says, I recently rewatched the Russell Crowe movie Noah. And what seems to be shown is a mix of truth and fable, meaning we see Adam and Eve as light beings. We see Tubal Cain as a king, and Noah tells them to go back to their cities of Cain. Ham is the one drawn to the dark side. We see Ham show up later in the stories of, of Babel and Egypt, as you wrote in your book, siding with Nimrod and Hermes. My question is, have you seen this movie? And if so, where does the or where do the rock beings of the fallen angels come from? Does quote unquote bound in Dudael in this version of the story just mean bound to earth or the third heaven? And is or are there some stories, history, mythology of the fallen ones being tied to earth or in this case planets and rock beings as we see, possibly tied to the thing in Marvel Comics? And some of the stories of the gods being bound to certain planets. Oh, yeah. Long question. Uh, thank you for the taking the time to answer it. Okay. So the movie, yes, I did see the movie. And yes, it is a more of a Gnostic version of the Flood. Um, and that's why you have the characters that are, you know, from the Sethian bloodline as being... Um, not so righteous, which would go in conflict with uh, what the Bible talks about. You also have help of the ark being built by the fallen angels and the protection of the fallen angels, which are tied to these rocks. And you've got uh, you've got Tubal Cain being, as I recall in the movie, the one who is surviving on the ark which again is a Kabbalah mystical story where Tubal Cain is in, in some cases Og, so it's kind of conflating two different characters, but it's hanging on to the Ark or and is saved and or is a uh, somebody who is hiding on the ship to, to be saved and that's how they you know they survive into the post diluvian world. Those are all Gnostic or mystical Kabbalism sort of doctrines and so I wasn't very impressed with the movie uh, that's for darn sure because I knew they were there to mislead people and to cast dispersions on the righteous uh, branch of Seth and uh, there's a lot of Gnostic doctrine that was woven in there if people don't know the story very very well and one of those is that very interesting thing where you do see these fallen ones who are tied by chains and they're uh, viewed as sort of rock people and again that's kind of an allegory that comes right out of Gnosticism so where there I think that comes from is a couple of sources one is that 
Azazel is thought in the occult world, and this could be an allegory, and I think it is, but he's chained to rocks in Orion, which is, you know, the same place where gods rise in their uh, in, in their reincarnation aspect of uh, falling, you know, of dying, and, you know, like Osiris, for example, and, and, and Isis. So that's one aspect of it, but I think that's just an allegory for the abyss. And so Ginsberg, who wrote um, and recorded all of the Jewish legends in several different books, and who I do quote in the book, um, he says that the fallen angels in Jewish legend were recorded as being bound to jag jagged rocks for 70 generations in the abyss. So I think that's an allegory of those fallen angels that are in, in the abyss. And then in Enoch, uh, chapter 10, verse 1, you have Azazel that's tied to a jagged rock, which sort of, again, lines up with uh, the Ginsberg uh, recording and documentation of Jewish legend. And in 10, 11, it talks about uh, through verse 16, it talks about the fallen angels being bound in the valley of the earth uh, to the end of generations and bound both hand and foot um, in, in the abyss in chapter 8. And in the secrets of Enoch, which is typically second Enoch, depending on which you know, version that you're reading, um, they're bound in... Uh, and hung in the abyss that's a place of fire and ice and rivers of fire flowing through it and they're weeping in senses you know continually uh in in the abyss so that's where sort of all of the from what, what my, my research and understanding has that i've been able to find that sort of goes back to the rocks of the fallen angels who are tied to these giant rocks they're not actually rocks but they're in the earth probably in another dimension, in the abyss, in the underworld. And I think that's what is being portrayed there. It's just sort of typical Gnostic allegory to sort of talk to their followers in an allegory that they understand, as opposed to the superficial narrative. In the mysteries, you have the superficial tale, or the fairy tale, as they like to talk about it. And you have to be an adept or at least rising in the pyramid of degrees to understand these allegories. And so those allegories were put in there to talk to their audience that, hey, look, look at this great story we did that we get to bash Christians, bash the Bible, put in our own doctrines, and they don't even know what we're talking about. So it's that allegory and taciturn language that they embed into things in plain sight that they know most people aren't awake enough to see. That would be a classic example, and that would be certainly part of it. Now, when you look at Marvel comics and things like that, understand they're talking about fallen angels and their offspring all of the time in these superheroes, because the heroes were the offspring of gods and human females. And so you would expect sort of... Uh, that type of thing and you know marvelous in second enoch is talking as a description about these nephilim these heroes of old and that's where marvel actually 
gets their name from. So again, if you understand the language of what they're talking about, then you'll understand parts of what they're trying to portray. And again, I think that I, I, I thought the movie was absolutely awful. Uh, I didn't even think it was all that entertaining, but I was following a lot of the allegories and the things that they were embedding and how they were trying to mislead people about what really happened. Absolutely. It's crazy. Uh, when I first came to faith and I was just watching the regular movies that I'd always watched, like the Transformers and, you know, all, you know, all the things that are popularized, you see so many references to the Bible and, and to what really happened in history that, you know, people just don't really study their Bibles. So they don't know very much of what happened and Genesis 6 especially. Uh, so being able to see that is really interesting, but it's really sad because like you said, you always see a twist and a blaspheme, a blasphemy in there. Uh, it's really sad. Uh, but moving on to our next question comes from Sarang. Leviticus 26.11, I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you. Gary, can you please expound on this verse, God stating he has a soul? Oh, he asks such great questions. <laughs> uh, so it also says that in Leviticus 26.30. And so let's have, have a little bit of a, uh, a harder look at this. So, and I already talked earlier that a soul is of the earth, as is the body, and the spirit is from heaven, and God is, is spirit. So let's keep that in mind. But it's, here it's talking about a soul. And so that uh, he can set his tabernacle among us and that his soul doesn't abhor, uh, abhor you. So that word soul is nefesh in Hebrew, 5315. And abhor is gall, failure uh, or cast away or disappoint. And... We also get in Leviticus 26, 15, where it says, um, if your soul abhors God's judgment. So again, it's talking about that body aspect of the earth that would fail God's judgments or God's laws as Leviticus 26, 15. So again, that's the, the soul part as opposed to the spirit part. So let's just wanted to sort of get that on the table. And, a little earlier, we talked about a habitation in the physical world when we were talking about um, DNA and stuff like that that Miriam was asking. And it's kind of similar here. We also talked about how Jesus needed a dwelling place to become uh, flesh in the earth. And he's only going to become flesh once. Okay? And that happens in the time of the New Testament. Well, this is well before that. So now, the tabernacle is the Hebrew word mishken, and that means tent or hut or habitation or dwelling place. And the Holy of Holies is going to be in the tabernacle where God is going to dwell amongst his people. So it's in the physical world. It's the sort of concrete, properly made thing as a 
as a soul, not as a soul of a physical being, but as a place to hold the spirit, that the spirit merges with that soul, in this case, the Holy of Holies, in the dwelling place, the tabernacle, so God could be with us. And this is the, the, this is the Lord God. This is Jehovah. This isn't, um, you know, the God of heaven. This is Yahweh. This is the one who is the word who's going to become flesh. And he's not going to become flesh twice. So he needs a holding place, in my understanding, of Yahweh, as opposed to Elohim, Lord God. You have uh, Jehovah uh, Elohim. And this is the name that comes out of I am, who is talking to Moses, that goes back to Yahweh, a state of being, and to Yah, and to Yehovah, three different roots to the same sort of word to the, what we get as I am. This is the I am that is going to be amongst uh, us as the pre-incarnate Jesus, so to speak, uh, for lack of a better use of words, that will become flesh down the road. This is the word of God dwelling among us and talking to and being with the Israelites. And so this is sort of an allegory for that soul. It's not that God has a soul of the physical world. There was a dwelling place created for God's spirit so he could dwell amongst us. That would be my understanding of, of how I would interpret that verse. Because, yeah, when you first read it and you go to, and then you get another verse in 2630 in Leviticus that says essentially the same thing, you're going, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense because of what we learned of what soul is as in the flesh, which is, you know, in the Old Testament for all of the physical beings that they have um, as part of their being. But we all, there's also that spirit aspect. And we learn about that in the New Testament with body, soul, and the spirit. And we have what seemingly is a conflict, except that this dwelling place for God is not a physical being. It's a physical place created, but it's not a being. So hopefully, hopefully I, I tried to explain that because it's it's quite quite a nuanced explanation and application as to what I think is trying to be conveyed to us. Very well put. Thank you very much for sharing that. All right, our last question from the pre-made list before we get hopefully a couple of the live questions. This one says, yesterday Israel 365 News put out an article stating, stating that the New World Order is a necessary evil for their Messiah to arrive because he will lead the One World Government. Do you think that they're being deceived into worshiping the Antichrist? Absolutely, they're being prepared for that. And they will accept something less for a while. And so, again, if you put yourself in the shoes of the people of Judah and not being part of the mystical aspect, but just as, let's say, a monotheistic Jewish person who doesn't accept Christ as being the Messiah yet, they will, but not yet, then they're waiting for their Messiah. And they know that the times are getting there, and they know they're in Israel, which they need to be, and they know they have Jerusalem, which is required for the end time, and they're expecting and preparing for the Messiah, and the Messiah is going to be the ruler of the world. 
So from that perspective, you can see how they're going to be more easily deceived and manipulated into accepting the one who gives them peace through the covenant in Daniel 9.27 I talked about earlier that starts the last seven years and then permits them to do the sacrifice on an overspreading extremity uh, wing of the temple as it's talked about in, in Daniel 11 that uh, they're going to be able to do their sacrifice until Antichrist takes power with the abomination and ends that. And they recognize that he is Antichrist and they flee Jerusalem and Judea to be protected by God for three and a half years. Revelation 12 and Jesus talks about that in Mark 24, Mark, or I mean Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke. 17 or 21, I can't remember which one now, probably both. Um, and so, yeah, I think they are, and, and the whole propaganda is needs to prepare them to be accepting of this false messiah so that they break down all of the monotheist religions to be folded into Babylon, which is going to sponsor with Antichrist negotiating the covenant, that 10-king New World Empire that Antichrist will usurp three and a half years into the start of the last seven years. So yes, I think they're being manipulated. And although they're hoping for their Messiah, they're going to make a, a great mistake. They're going to pay for it. And then they're going to recognize with Jesus' sign as the one who they pierced. And that's when they accept Jesus as their Messiah, and they flee for protection for God. And that's where the reconciliation of Judah and awakening Israel happens through the second exodus after the abomination with Jesus as a sign in the last three and a half years. So anyways, I don't want to go through the whole prophetic cycle of that because it's, it's just so much detail to it. But understand that uh, in the end time, they're going to find out in the last three and a half years, beginning at the midpoint, they're going to know clearly that they're the ones who pierced uh, Jesus and they're going to mourn for him like their only son. And they're going to realize and they're going to repent. And it's going to be a great thing to uh, complete the fulfillment of the bride um, as this starts to happen after the midpoint of the last seven years. Awesome. Thank you very much. And I know you said you didn't want to get too deep into it, but I don't know if I've asked you before or if we've discussed, do you think that the second exodus could be in the area of Petra? Well, it's to the wilderness and to the mountains. So, I mean, Petra would be in that area and that would be a great place to protect them from, right? Now, I'd, I'd have to have a harder look to see how because uh, I'm, I'm thinking like the Euphrates River is going to be uh, this great uh, river that's spewed out by the dragon to try and destroy Judea. So those would be the dams being broken. And it's the, the same scourge that sweeps by uh, in, in the time of the Exodus. So again, at the midpoint when you have the covenant that's annulled in Isaiah, it's using the same language as Revelation 12, 
as they're getting ready for Second Exodus. And of course, the Second Exodus will include everybody from around the world, Judah and Wakening Israel. And so this will happen at by at least by the time uh, the second exodus to meet them, uh, Judea in the wilderness, by the year of the Lord's favor, which I think is a year before Armageddon starts. But I think Judea gets there first. So yes, I think they're going to go to the wilderness. I think Petra would be a good location. And they're going to be uh, swept up on eagles' wings just as the first exodus was done. So they're going to be led and... I would think by implication where you had the Red Sea that was parted for them, I think this scourge will be poured, uh, uh, parted for them as God protects them to get to the wilderness. But that's a bit of my speculation on there. And Petra would be a perfect place, and it would be in the mountainous wilderness that is being described. Yeah, I always just thought it was really interesting how Adam, uh, Edom, Ammon, and Moab were you know, the three kingdoms that weren't uh, part of the Antichrist kingdom and how yeah. uh, Petra, you know, is right there in Jordan where that location is. So awesome. Great questions tonight. Uh, it's been an awesome pre-made list. We'll go ahead and try to get to a couple of these live stream questions. The first one seems like you could probably do a two hour show on though. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this one comes from MJM. Question. Assuming the tribulation starts three years prior to the standard seven year period, what event kicks off this three years, and what happens during these three years? So if I understand the question, it's the uh, when I was talking about the ten years, the three years before the start of the last seven years, and mm -hmm. what kicks that off. That would be the question? Yes. Yeah, I think that's the rise of Babylon. I think as the false prophets and the catastrophes are mounting, uh, to have people convert to the one true religion mount, you're going to have Christians standing up against this. And I think that persecution is going to start there. By the time that Babylon has full power and the start of the last seven years with the signing of the covenant, Babylon goes into full genocidal mode. So it's that increase of level again uh, from the three years before the last seven into the three and a half years. And those are, you know, the multitudes of people that are going to be martyred like the first fruits were in Revelation 6. And these first fruits are the martyred ones of the first three and a half years in Revelation 7 that the ones in Revelation 6 are waiting for. But you're going to see that persecution on a fairly high level, just not quite at that same level as in the first three and a half years. And I think... Babylon is starting the genocide and for sure the persecution and the and the people around the world and the governments around the world are going to look at the Christians and be turning against them. But by the time you get the start of the last seven years, all of the restrictions will be off and the genocide will be absolutely on an unbelievable scale against Christians. Awesome. Thank you very much for that great answer. Our next live question comes from Johnny Gonzalez. What do you think about the two different accounts on creation in Genesis and the two gods, Elohim versus Yahuwah Elohim? Yeah, it's, 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 uh, <laughs> it's a very, very good question. Um, 
I have a two and a half hour presentation that if people, I know it costs a hundred bucks to get from the true legends, but I walked through all of that in two and a half hours. It's that detailed of a litigation in terms of showing how you can translate Genesis one, one to one, two differently than the standard dogma. So I'm not doctrinal on it. I understand it could be translated both ways. Uh, the standard dogma that the, all the earth and the heavens and earth are all created in the six days of creation, as Exodus 20 talks about. But I also know you can translate it that it was this, it was all created before the six days of creation, that somewhere between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, the world became as the other translation, as opposed to was. Um, and that that's how the world became void and um, formless. And that this would be a better time for the angelic rebellion, where that just earth was destroyed to the foundations of the earth, as Job and Psalms 104 talks about. And that when you would destroy the world to that level, you would have the water collapse in onto the earth so that when you get into the six days of creation you have to to you have to split the water again so that you can establish the firmament because it's that firmament that separates the the uh <clears throat> first heaven from 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 the second heaven as opposed to the third heaven which is the spiritual realm and that's what's talked about in in exodus 20 is that the firmament, which is called heaven in, in Genesis 1, actually literally called heaven, um, is what is being talked about as a renewal process that's talked about in Genesis, not in Genesis, but Psalms 104.30, where when God sends his spirit, the earth is renewed. That's what happens in Genesis 1-2, where the spirit is hovering over this void and formless earth that became that way. And so I think that's, you know, that period, that gap is a better location for the rebellion of the fallen angels who destroyed the earth in that process, which would be probably some of these weapons that we talked about with the Vanat, uh, Vimana earlier on in the, into the show. And it also matches up well with Second Peter, where it talks about uh, the earth that was in water and and then was not is reserved for the uh, fire by destruction again in the end time. And that was in the beginning. And the beginning, as we talked about earlier in the show, as with serpent, is from the first principle, from the beginning of creation. Just as angels were created before the heavens and the earth were created, that Psalms 104 talks about. Psalms 104 actually talks about creation in the larger sort of aspect. So I think there's a good case for it. Um, but to make full sense of it, either get a hold of me. I've got two documents on it on it for you if you if you want a more detailed one uh, version of what I'm talking about and or get the video because uh, I think I walked through it in a very, very good way. And I heard a lot of comments about it from people saying I've never heard it talked about the gap theory in that way and makes so much sense. And some people said for the first time, it actually made sense to me and uh, I need to have a, another look at it. So again, I'm not doctrinal on it, but I recognize that 
you know, maybe that fits better for when the actual angelic rebellion happened and when we line it up with verses with Satan where he sinned from the beginning and was a murderer from the beginning. The beginning's not Eden. It's not even, Eden's not even the beginning of, <laughs> of, of, day, of day one, right? So that, that, that comes afterwards. So when we're talking about the beginning, I think we're talking about uh, something that's further back in history. So anyways, quick, quick, that was a quick summary. And I know it's, I know it's a big subject and I may not have been all that clear, but hopefully I made some sense. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's been a great show. Thank you everybody for joining. Thank you, Gary, for giving the great blessing of all your knowledge that you've been given to the audience. It's always a, a pleasure to hear you make some sense. And I know that last question, it's something that you know many people struggle with and we get questions about all the time. So having access to that uh, thorough of a presentation is definitely a blessing as well. Uh, so as always, we just want to let everyone know that if your questions weren't answered and we did say in the chat that we had gotten them, we'll move those on to next month's AMA. And we always join for the first Monday of every month at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for our Ask Me Anything episodes with author and researcher Gary Wayne. Lastly, Gary, for those who are just tuning in, could you please let us know again where we could get a copy of your book, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy? Yeah, best place is the Genesis6Conspiracy.com. That's with the number six, conspiracy.com. And on there, there's an icon that says Buy Now. And you can buy a book uh, for myself and get it signed, or you can buy it through uh, Amazon and the digital Kindle version. You can click on an icon for that, or you can click on an icon and link over to where it's shown and sold on barnesandnoble.com for the, for the uh, paperback copy. And same for uh, amazon.com and amazon.ca. You can link directly to where it's sold on Amazon. Excellent. It's been a great show. And lastly, we always like to close out in prayer. Would you mind saying a little prayer to close us out? Sure. Father in heaven, we thank you for all the things that you've done for us. We thank you for all of the blessings and everything that you've provided for us. And things like and include the ability to commune and get together and discuss some of the more nuanced and deeper aspects of what's in scripture it encourages me encourages me so much to see how people are taking the lead from scripture saying to search out scripture more and father i ask that you bless all of those who are doing such and all of those who are listening to the show today and all of those who will listen to people who have listen to this show and are spreading some of that information on and spreading the research and the things that they're doing in the same way that we've done in this show, that you bless them and bless those people then continue this chain of learning because the seeds need to be planted and the saints that are planting those seeds, they need your protection and they need your, your strength. And so we thank you for providing that and creating us avenues to prepare people for the times that we're in. And we pray these things in the name of our Redeemer, the Word Jesus, who sits at your right hand side and testifies to you for us. 
and for all of the saints. We also pray in the name of the Holy Spirit and your great and holy name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, everybody, again for joining. And thank you again, Gary, for sharing your research and your perspective. And we'll thank see you, you next month. Absolutely. Good night, all. Everyday questions arise. Are the stories in the Bible true? What if I told you that there are hundreds of confirming witnesses? Which give intricate detail to the stories in the Bible. Have you ever found yourself deep in the rabbit hole with questions that no one seemed to have the answers to? Join us the first Monday of every month at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Endeavor Freedom YouTube channel for our Ask Me Anything series with author and researcher Gary Wayne as he sheds light on the mysteries which have us all searching together.